Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Election Violence Edition. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington and host of this podcast. Violence, intimidation, terrorism, and protest are occurrences that frequently threaten the integrity of elections and democracies around the world. From the assassination of candidates in Colombia and Mexico, to threats against voters by the Taliban in Afghanistan, to protesters showing up at vote count centers in the US. Election periods often experience swells in violence and instability. To discuss the role that violence too often plays in democracy, I am joined for today's episode by two colleagues and dare I say old friends, Stephanie Burchard and Austin Wright. Stephanie is a research staff member at the Africa program at the Institute for Defense Analyses and adjunct professor of political science at George Washington University. Widely recognized as a global expert on the topics of election violence, democracy, and security policy in Africa, Stephanie has numerous publications, including her fantastic book, Electoral Violence in Sub-Saharan Africa, Causes and Consequences. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, James. And I love that introduction. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to send it to my mom, who said my book had no plot, and uh, there was no romance, and she couldn't make it through it, so... Well, that's great because my mom is listening to this podcast and wondering how I know such smart people and have <laughs> and, and been so fortunate to, to, to know people like you in my, in my professional life. So that's great. Both of our moms will be happy then. Awesome. We are also joined today by Austin Wright. Austin is an assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and a faculty affiliate of the Pearson Institute and Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. Austin researches and teaches on the political economy of insurgent violence, corruption, and applied statistics. His current work examines how rebel groups use new technologies to undermine government activities, including disrupting elections. Austin recently published a paper at the American Economic Review titled The Logic of Insurgent Electoral Violence, co-authored with Luke Condra, Andrew Shaver, and yours truly. Hi, Austin. Hey, James. Great to be here. So I wanted to have you both on to talk about your research studying election violence globally and how those insights inform the trajectory of democracy around the world and in the US. But before that, I always like to tell origin stories when I have guests on the podcast who I've been friends with and known for some time. So Stephanie, how do you and I know each other? If I'm not mistaken, we met through my colleague Dorina Biko when we brought you to DC to talk about the Kenyan uh, 2013 elections, is that correct? I think it was before that. Be it was before the yeah, Kenyan elections, but- Yeah, because when Dorina was at uh, US Institute of Peace, it was, that was when I was there. And I, I wanna say that was 2011. Okay, so I met your 2012. So I think it was okay. right around there, but I'm positive it was through her and work on uh, Kenyan elections. Yeah, and your name always comes up in sort of the policy circles as well as academic circles around kind of international election observation, electoral violence, uh, peace and conflict, you know, monitoring, peace building, stuff like that. Yeah, I tend to work in both um, sort of the policy space is my primary uh, area, but I like to, I don't know, I guess it's just an artifact of grad school. They beat into you have to publish and you have to, you know, be part of this, you know, broad academic uh, group. And so I've continued to maintain ties with academia as well. Well, I'm going to tell your mom that your book is the perfect stock stocking stuffer <laughs> for this year. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Austin, how do you and I know each other? 
Uh, let's see. So we've known each other for a while now. I think that the first email exchange, but you might correct me here, that we ever had was uh, Andrew and I back in 2015. Uh, this was when we first got the big dump from from U.S. Central Command on the SIGAC state in Afghanistan. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. So you, you and Andrew were graduate students at Princeton. Yeah, so we were grad students together at Princeton. We were in, we actually, I think, if I'm remembering history correctly, we took the same class the very first semester of, of grad school. I think uh, at the time, Andrew was in his second year in the master's program at Woodrow Wilson, and I was my first year in the PhD. And then ultimately, Drew got, you know, went into the PhD, finished off his years, and and we had continued, uh, continued working together. Um, and, you know, that you know, the idea uh, when we started working, we had sort of an interest in terrain. Um, and then ultimately, Andrew got me very interested in working uh, with data from Iraq and Afghanistan. At the time, that data, which we ended up using in our paper, James, um, uh, in Afghanistan wasn't publicly available, wasn't available for like the, the entire period that we ended up being able to study. And uh, we were fortunate enough uh, with some colleagues to, to be on a, a co-request for that data. And ultimately that enabled us to, to clear it, to study it. And, and one of the first things that we did, this is something I encourage you know, students to do, is always look at, always look at the raw data. Um, and uh, I think one of the first passes that we did is we looked at the time series of the raw data, just looking at you know, this combat activity and we saw what would ultimately become in a more polished version, figure one in, in the paper that we wrote together, uh, looking at election violence. Because what we saw are these like uh, four clearly observable spikes in violence that are just uh, you know, very obviously distinct. Looking at a time series, we were talking about hundreds of thousands of events occurring, but those spikes on those four election days, uh, we could clearly see even then. Uh, and then we were on a, you know, we started off with an email and then kicked around some ideas and then started writing a paper. Um, and I think that the first time we ever uh, met in person was you invited me out to a workshop at the University of Washington. And uh, that's where we got some of like the first feedback that ended up becoming what is effectively the second half of that paper, which is really what I think is, is, is interesting for today's conversation not just you know, what drives the decision to engage in electoral violence, but ultimately what are the consequences of that violence uh, for the individuals who get elected and for the subsequent stability of those regimes. Um, yeah, so I think that's like the, the long-winded version of how did we meet and- Yeah, and I think it's interesting too, like how these, you know, I think on all the work that the three of us, the type of work that the three of us do does require a lot of partnerships, um, not only among other scholars and and, and policymakers in the U.S. and that are based in the U.S., but really around the world. And and this type of research is really like a global enterprise, which I think is always very exciting. I totally agree. And like, so election violence, this, um, this field straddles two very distinct literatures. I come from an elections background and that's how I approach electoral violence. I assume Austin and James, you guys come from more of a civil war rebellion background. And so you approach electoral violence in a very different way. And I think that when 
um, those literatures speak to each other, we get a better understanding of what's actually happening because there are the electoral concerns, but there's also like rebel group formation and insurgent activity, which I know nothing about, absolutely nothing about. And so I'm excited to hear more about your research, but I think that that provides a bigger picture or a more complete picture of what is happening. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there, Stephanie. I feel like, you know, when uh, when I think about election violence, my thought, of course, is is an interest in the downstream consequences for the election itself, how those institutions are constructed, which I know, you know, James has obviously done a tremendous amount of work on, you know, how do we build freer and fairer elections? Um, but yeah, thinking, digging into what are those motivations that groups have to engage in that violence and how do their motivations and ultimately their strategic incentives influence the types of targets that they engage, influence the timing of their attacks, which is you know, a big part of the, the work that we did together. Um, See, even your language, though, the targets and the attacks, I yeah. don't think of election violence like that. I think about the actors and what you know, incentives they have for engaging in violence so that they can win an election. Like I, yeah. to me, it's all about sort of a, you know, campaign strategy. How do you use violence mm -hmm. and fraud to get yourself to the end? And you guys really are much more into, you know, the, it's just a different literature. And I think it makes for a much richer understanding. Yeah. What Austin refers to as a target, Stephanie, you call a polling center. Or a <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, so Stephanie, so this is not, this is actually a, a big question, but I thought you could start us off. What is election violence actually? Like what, what does it mean? How is it defined? And how is it different from other forms of violence? Absolutely. I mean, this is an entry point into the conversation. Election violence is a subset of political violence, right? Any violence, intimidation, harassment, et cetera, meant to influence politics, you've got your political violence, but election violence is time bound and it's specific to an election. It is any violence that is either indirectly or directly, and this is a sticking point for some people, um, meant to affect the outcome of an election or in response to an election. So usually it's like six months to three months, we can fuzzy with the dates, but there's got to be some boundaries around it because the violence is specific to that election or in response to it. And so it could occur during the campaign period, it could occur mm -hmm. on election day itself, yeah. and it could occur after the election, but still kind of in a response to whatever happened on election day. Exactly. Um, but it, it's all sort of the fulcrum is that election, right? That's the pivot point. Um, political violence may be meant to influence policy, um, specific decisions that are made when um, politicians hold office, but election violence is just really targeted, see I use your word, targeted towards that election. And who is committing these acts of violence? So I'd say in Africa, which is the, the region that I know the, the very best, um, the analysis is maybe 80 percent of election violence is um, uh, undertaken by state actors uh, and incumbent regimes. Um, in some countries, though, you do have both the opposition and um, the state uh, engaging in election violence. Kenya, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, um, those are cases where I know that both um, or multiple political parties will engage in violence to affect the outcome. And is this typically like, um, do, you, you know, are we thinking of like candidates themselves 
with guns out campaigning? Are we thinking of like their very close supporters, like card carrying members of their political party? Are we thinking of just like voters kind of mass mobilization turning out and, and, and trying to, you know, intimidate the other side? What does this actually yes. look like? Yes, all of that. <laughs> so it depends on the context, but um, it could be uh, the government, which uh, has the monopoly on violence or should have the monopoly on violence is using state security actors to go intimidate um, and arrest opposition um, candidates and supporters. Um, it could be that political parties and um, politicians are going, and this is the case in Kenya, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, um, and maybe Zambia, Ghana, um, where they will go and hire youth um, to sort of intimidate voters, um, to go and sort of spread um, the message, vote this way or don't vote this way. Um, and then sometimes you'll have just um, rival supporters getting upset with each other at rallies. Um, so I, I, there's one, um, one point that I like to make with election violence. You've got the strategic violence, which is deliberately undertaken by actors who either do it themselves or um, you know, uh, farm out that, that act or you have incidental violence, which is just because there's so much um, tension, anger, and um, so much at stake that you'll have actors, um, like protests will turn into riots, right? Or rallies will you know, turn into riots, essentially. Um, and that's not necessarily um, intentional, but it certainly is not, um, you know, there is some forethought to it. And one of the things that's interesting, and I think it's kind of hard for people to understand, and this is all, I mean, this was really true of, I think, the recent election in the United States is when we think about election violence, we think about literal acts of violence, like actual realized violence, but we also think about just intimidation, just like a chilling effect or just, you know, kind of the, 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 the mafia boss on the corner, you know, sort of flexing their muscle and then all the voters around there are just kind of scared to do a certain thing. And so it's, it's not only the actual exercise of violence, but it's the absence of violence sometimes, but the threat of it, if, if, if things don't go a certain way. So violence, I mean, is not purely physical acts, right? And it's certainly not just um, bodily harm. It could be um, attacks on polling places. It could be property damage. Um, Nick Cheeseman, if you know his work, uh, I'm sure I'm you sure. do. Yeah, um, yeah. He was, he made the point that in Zimbabwe or no, yeah, Zimbabwe, um, there was a lot of uh, property damage and farms burned down and houses burned down uh, in the 2008 election violence. And so politicians in the most recent election in Zimbabwe didn't have to engage in that type of violence. They could just hold a matchbox and shake it at a rally and oh. people would know this is what, this is the intimidation. This is sort of, you know, if you don't vote this way, right. we will burn down your house. Right. Now, Austin, in, in our work, we bring in a different set of actors to the study of election violence that's, that, that's I think, kind of unique and, and builds on what Stephanie just said. So who, who do we look at and who are you concerned with when you examine election violence? Yeah, so I think, you know, like Stephanie was describing, there is, uh, there are a tremendous number of actors engaged in attempts to manipulate the outcomes of elections by engaging in outright violence or intimidation. Um, we're, we were interested in, and I think more broadly, I'm interested in the role of non-state actors, particularly insurgents, um, who try and use uh, their various methods of violence to influence outcomes. And I think there's a few different ways that that 
is the case. One is trying to influence um, the sort of vote shares for particular individuals. It could be the case that they have effectively a, a wing of their organization that's running a set of candidates or a single candidate in that election. And they might want to influence the vote share for that individual. It could be that they want to influence the vote share for a specific person, even if they are themselves sort of anti-state, uh, in part because they know if that individual is elected, it can be very disruptive. Um, and I think the third piece is as an attempt to just undermine the legitimacy of the process in general, if you can reduce turnout overall, you can reduce buy-in, you can reduce the, any credible claim to a mandate that whoever's eventually elected will have. But Austin, just to be clear, you're, you're, Stephanie is talking about incumbent governments and political parties and candidates that are actually trying to win office. You're actually talking about, when you say non-state actors, you mean rebel groups, insurgents, terrorists who want no part of, of a democracy. They're not actually trying to win the election as such. Yeah, exactly. So I think there are, there are some of these groups uh, that have wings of the organization that do run candidates. But for the most part, we think you should think of them as effectively anti-state organizations whose goal is to undermine the current institution. Um, as certainly the case in, in Afghanistan, where the Taliban, that is, that is their stated goal, is to undermine the election. And uh, at least some of the communiques that, that we saw coming out of the violence used in 2014 suggested that they were particularly interested in, in uh, one, keeping Ashraf Ghani uh, from being elected, uh, but also uh, attempting for Abdullah Abdullah to, to make it in the first round, which would have ultimately peeled apart the entire government. And, and how were they doing that specifically? Yeah, so what we were able to study uh, the, with the data that we had access to is their use of violence in the lead up to the election. So like Stephanie mentioned, there's a, there's a period before elections that are really relevant. Um, that's because whenever we think about election violence, it's typically targeted in, in a manner that's sequenced around the election itself. Uh, so what we were able to study is violence in that, that month before the first round in 2014. And what we saw was uh, a strategic reallocation of roadside bombs away from areas that would experience very little foot traffic on election day if voters used an optimal path uh, versus those that would effectively be high traffic places on election day. And so we saw that uh, strategic shift. And I think the other important thing is that we saw them use just a tremendous amount of violence on those election days, uh, but they timed their violence very carefully uh, to be in the morning, which is a little unusual relative to the general distribution of violence. Um, and most of that violence occurring during this period before voting was actually happening. Uh, and most people hadn't showed up at the polls yet. And so this kind of gets back to this broader notion that when we think about violence, often people think, well, this is individuals being directly injured or potentially killed by these attacks. Indeed, that's not necessarily the case. You can engage in a tremendous amount of violence and strategically not harm individuals if your goal is ultimately to intimidate them. Um, so yeah, let me so ask a question coming from yeah. a non, you know, uh, insurgent uh, Civil War background. Um, what the insurgents, uh, do they want to target civilians? Are they trying to, you know, uh, send a message to, to actual voters or are they trying to sort of win hearts and minds? Mm, that's interesting. So I don't think in terms of their use of violence around elections, they're at all trying to win hearts and minds. I think that what they're trying to do is, is they're trading off 
the intention of disrupting the election process. And that could be potentially manipulating the outcome. So a, a desired candidate who could undermine the system will get elected. Um, but ultimately, like a Trojan, horse. Like a Trojan horse candidate, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like a Trojan horse candidate, or maybe you just want to reduce turnout mm-hmm. in general. I don't, you know, what they, at least what, what our study suggests is that actually very deliberate in avoiding harm to civilians, uh, despite producing a tremendous amount of violence. So they're trading off this desire to disrupt the election against the consequences of what usually goes along with producing a lot of indiscriminate violence, which is civilian harm. Um, and I think, you know, to get to the point you raised earlier, Stephanie, this is where coming from uh, the sort of counterinsurgency background kind of shapes the way that we think about this. What what I see in this pattern of violence is a deliberate attempt to avoid civilian casualties because of the role, a unique role that civilians play during an ongoing conflict, which is they're a source of resources for these groups, but they're also a potential source of valuable intelligence about their operations to the government. Um, and so, you know, there's quite a bit of work in that vein on the link between civilian casualties committed by particular actors like insurgents and ultimately their willingness to cooperate with the government. And, you know, we see effectively that same dynamic, that same dilemma playing out um, in the use of election violence as well. I have a question about gender considerations. Is there any sort of um, uh, gendered strategy in insurgent violence during elections? Because I know in uh, uh, election violence sort of in, you know, more democratic context that there is a gendered component that women candidates are really targeted um, and it's a different type of election violence. It's really targeted at the aspirant to prevent them from participating because uh, lots of places feel like women shouldn't be running for office. Um, And then the nature of election violence can be different. There's a lot more sexual violence against women, domestic and intimate partner violence uh, towards women um, you know, members of their family, their husbands, their fathers telling them, hey, you can't vote this way, um, sort of threatening their, them. Do you see that, uh, any sort of gendered component in your research? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, for the most part, at least in this context, we were looking at candidates who were of the same gender. They were all male. Um, and the data doesn't allow us to disentangle who is directly impacted by that violence. So it very well could have been the case that there was some uh, deliberate attempt to target women, for example. But, you know, I think that what you're touching on is, is part of a much broader story, which is the use of gendered violence in, in conflicts period. And I think um, you're absolutely right that uh, that violence being targeted at uh, women could be directly linked to democratization with the expansion you know, of the franchise, for example, right? With, as you point out, uh, a, sh- a shift in the nature, the gendered nature of the candidates themselves. It could be a deliberate response to uh, like schedules, right? Or, or quota within those institutions, all, all of which could ultimately influence that violence. I don't think that any of the, the work, at least that I've done directly speaks to that question, but I think it's a really important one um, well, I would say, Stephanie, the, the violence that we looked at in the paper was violence from the Taliban. But one thing we know anecdotally from Afghanistan is that female candidates are frequently targeted <clears throat> by their families or by their local communities in, in local parliamentary races. 
Um, and I, you know, this happens a lot in Bangladesh and in India as well. Um, Somalia, I think as well. Yeah, because Afghanistan, so every province has a certain number of seats allocated to their their national parliament, but there's a weird quota system where you take, you know, however many seats you have that, you know, let's say you have 10 seats in the province, the top 10 vote getters in that province get those 10 seats. But if none of those happen to be women, there are scheduled seats that then have to go to a list of the next winning female candidate. So essentially, a lot of women do run in Afghan elections, even though we think of Afghanistan as being a very sort of misogynist or sexist society along a number of dimensions. And so a lot of women either are put out there in public life or put themselves out there. And I think, you know, anecdotally, I'm thinking of uh, particularly like in Kandahar, uh, a lot of violence against women who either didn't really have the support of local notables um, or were kind of um, put out as a you know representative of a dominant clan or family in one area and then attacked by um, uh, an opposing candidate's family. Interesting. Stephanie, I was going to ask you if, if Austin's kind of basic logic with insurgents works for formal political actors in the following way, which is um, you know, when people are, are shaking matchbooks in Zimbabwe to intimidate people, I could see how that would maybe scare some voters, but why doesn't that actually cause a candidate to lose that election? Like, if this is the person who's saber rattling, why do, you know, why does that, does that always work to necessarily help you win the election? Or can that cause some backlash for voters to say, wait a minute, we're not going to vote for the guy that burned the farms and that shakes the matchbooks? What an excellent question. Um... Not least of all, because I have an article that came out earlier this year that looks at this backlash effect and finds that I, I think I, I pulled um, survey data from 30 African countries and looked at those who fear election violence and what it does for their vote intention in future elections. And for um, people who self-identify as ruling party supporters, it has no impact. If they're afraid or not, it doesn't matter. They're going to vote for the ruling party. But opposition, uh, self-identified opposition members say they're more likely to vote for an opposition candidate and nonpartisans say they're more likely to vote for an opposition candidate. So I think at an attitudinal level, that fear of election violence can absolutely backfire. But we haven't introduced the role of electoral fraud and fraud and violence are companion strategies, right? And so um, if you can't win an election through fraud, you use violence. If you can't win through violence, you use fraud. And I think that it's hard to disentangle um, what the actual impact is. Uh, I think you can look at the attitudinal effects and see that you know voters do not like to be intimidated. Voters are not going to behave the way you want them to, especially if you're engaging in this matchbook stuff. But then if you don't win that way, just steal, just steal the election. Yeah, I mean, cause I think, I mean, I think this is a controversial opinion among political scientists, but I think a version of this is what happened in the US's recent election, which is that <clears throat> I think Trump and the I think Trump way overplayed his hand, right? Like he 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 was, you know, riling people up. He was telling people to, you know, to to cheat. He was basically giving free license to militias to show up at polling stations or to try to disrupt the work of election administrators. We know that there are protests trying to shut down count centers afterwards. And normally we would think that's a bad thing, but I think it had the opposite effect. I think 
you know, you try to tell voters in the state of Georgia who are African-American that they can't vote or that you're <laughs> going to make it difficult for them to vote, they're going to vote. You know, you tell young people that they can't vote, they'll just vote to piss you off, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and so I think there was sort of a, they overplayed the hand in the sense that that what it caused was, first of all, everybody to start paying attention to parts of the process that people typically don't. But I think it probably... I know this is a hard thing to, to directly measure. I'm guessing it actually caused a lot of mobilization among Democrats who on the margins may have stayed home, but look at how many states were determined by vote shares that were on the margin. I mean. I think that's true. And I think mobilization is the key. So just a lot of research early on assumed that election violence would decrease vote, uh, depress voter turnout um, because who wants to be intimidated? If you tell me vote this way or else, fine, I'll just opt out. There's no reason I'm gonna, you know, put my neck out there. But the research that's come out recently suggests that's not always the case, that voters don't respond the way you want them to. If you're trying to depress voter turnout, you can actually mobilize both your own supporters or opposition supporters by engaging in violence. I was at a, a workshop earlier this week and um, there was research done in, uh, I think, West Bengal in India, looking at the role of, um, uh, violence and um, using vignettes to, to ask people, okay, if violence occurred, do you think this uh, election was more free or more fair? And the, you know, assumption would be if you think violence occurred, you think that the election was less free and less fair, but voters uh, or survey respondents in this, um, this is by Ursula Dax Secker and uh, oh, Hannah yeah, Feld, sure. um, they found that, uh, ruling party supporters who were told that violence occurred by their own co-partisans uh, found that, that elections were more free and more fair. And so there's something weird going on. I think it has to do with extreme polarization, but if you think that your co-partisans are responsible, you maybe give a pass to it. Maybe you respond differently than people anticipate. Austin, do we know in Afghanistan if there are these knock-on mobilization effects on the part of voters or even the strategic behavior of candidates uh, coming out of insurgent violence. So, you know, there were two rounds of elections in 2014 that we looked at in the paper, but do we have a sense that if the Taliban attacks here or there at this time or not, that there, there is a counter mobilization that might occur on the part of voters or does it sort of uniformly depress turnout and, you know, people's participation? Yeah, well, I, I, what I would say is that, you know, what we find is on average a reduction in voter turnout but that could be masking the kinds of dynamics that, that you're talking about, Stephanie, which is, you know, there's an event that occurs here. It actually drives mobilization because perhaps there's some particularly charismatic politician in that area or a strong man who can manipulate uh, the public's opinion of the situation um, after an event has occurred, whereas in other places there isn't that. Um, and so I think that that's, it's certainly a possibility, but we don't, we don't find that in, in Afghanistan. That might also point to just a difference in the actors who are actually engaging in the violence, right? On, on one side, you have state actors, right? Actors who are intentionally trying to uh, perhaps boost turnout uh, for, for their candidates or, or undermine or influence uh, turnout for uh, other candidates. Whereas, you know, in this context, it's really actors attempting to decrease engagement overall. And if they can, maybe decrease it for the candidate that they like least or that they think would be the least useful. Um, but yeah, so to be clear, yeah, what we, what we find is not that their violence increases turnout for one candidate. It just, it disproportionately decreases turnout 
for the candidate that was least preferred. But again, that could be a difference from, from uh, state actors engaging in that violence to, to non-state actors. I mean, the purpose of the violence, right? So if you're trying to legitimize an election, you want more votes. If you're trying to delegitimize an election, you want less votes, right? So I think yeah. it could just be that. Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, I also think, you know, I like this, this link to the US election where I think it had exactly this effect, which is you engage, you attempt to promote the use of intimidation, you attempt to promote the use of violence, and that ultimately can be used as a motivating tool by the actors who are trying to turn out their own votes, right? Um, and uh, I think that's exactly what you saw, right? Like in the final days that like rushed towards the general, there really was this push uh, among sort of democratic candidates, among democratic leaders to say, look, there's an attempt to keep you from voting. And I, I deliberately remember this, uh, distinctly remember this moment uh, during uh, the debate where uh, you know, Joe Biden's looking at the camera, right? And he's specifically saying, they cannot keep you from voting, right? Your vote will be counted, right? Just reassuring the public to say, look, a couple of minutes earlier, this, this individual, you know, uh, the president was advocating the use of violence or intimidation or, or questioning the electoral system. Now I'm going to take this moment to use exactly those words to motivate my base. Um, and yeah, so I, I think, you know, this is, uh, it's it's really interesting that it can be used in that way. I don't um, think that we've necessarily seen it, uh, at least that that sort of the counteractive effect working that same way in a place like Afghanistan, for example. But I'm sure there are other contexts where that's true. Stephanie, in your book, Electoral Violence in Sub-Saharan Africa, which again, it makes a great stocking stuffer this year, <laughs> um, you, you, you talk about the causes and consequences of election violence, and you and Austin have kind of talked about the consequences directly on perhaps voter mo mobilization. Are there other um, downstream or subsequent consequences that may occur if violence is used in the campaign period or on election day? Absolutely. So one, I found that there is... Um, an impact on voters' uh, satisfaction with democracy. If they fear election violence, they um, tend to be less satisfied with their democracy. Um, they also tend to be slightly less supportive of democracy, though I think that, you know, it should be commended that anyone who is faced with routine sort of threats of violence during elections, like in Kenya or Nigeria, and still supports democracy, should get, you know, a pat on the back and, you know, gold ribbon and everything. So it sort of speaks to, I don't know, some of the universality and inherent goodness of democracy, which is the worst form of government except for all the others, right? So I'm going to throw some Churchill at you. <laughs> the best thing he said. Um, but so there are consequences for how people engage with their polity, right? If they're fearful of elections. Um, there's also... And I think it's a chicken or, or an egg issue. So if you've got politicians who are willing to engage in violence and then those politicians uh, actually go into office and hold office, how do they behave once they're in office? Um, you see that uh, violent elections are associated with uh, sort of degradation of political institutions and their integrity and their uh, capacity. Um, and so I can't say it's the election violence that's doing it, but I can tell you that a, a politician who's willing to engage in that type of campaigning is certainly not going to be held to high standards once they occupy office. Sure. And in, in Austin, in our paper, we were sort of asked this question as well, kind of beyond the direct consequences of voter turnout, 
what are what are the sort of big bigger picture takeaways that we can say about what the effects of election violence might be on um, on democracy in Afghanistan? So, do you want to summarize what what we argued in the paper? Yeah. So, you know what what we were able to track down um, is <clears throat> some survey data uh, that a, a survey wave that occurred just after most of these episodes of political violence around the 2014 election. And, you know, respondents were asked about their level of satisfaction with the electoral process, effectively what we interpret as like their satisfaction or engagement with democracy. Um, and indeed what we find is that sort of across the board, uh, we can introduce a bunch of different measures of exposure to violence and all of them seem to reduce the level of satisfaction that individuals have, which we take our takeaway is that that reduces the legitimacy of the electoral process, which at the end of the day, it really is a two pronged goal. One is the direct consequence of undermining the election on election day, but ultimately trying to shape um, the perceived legitimacy of the election process, especially if your violence may not have worked as effectively on election day as you thought. Um, and I think That's that a, that has some pretty point. parallels to the US context. Well, I I mean, I'm not a violence expert, but it's unwieldy as a strategy. So if you are engaging in violence, right, you can't put that back in the box when you're done with it. So you create grievances across society. And um, in a worst case scenario, election violence can lead to a prolonged conflict, like in Cote d'Ivoire, in Angola, in Kenya. There's lots of examples in the region that I know best of um, election violence that just, you know, could not be contained once it, once it was unleashed. Yeah, no, that's, and I think that's a, it's a really good point in the case of uh, at least the 2014 round. So the first term of the Ghani administration, you know, the, the election was, was on a knife's edge, right? And what emerged from that election was a power sharing government. Uh, between those two top candidates, which effectively undermine the executive authority of the individual who by and large probably won the election. And that in and of itself created, you know, an impediment to policy formation and clear messaging from the central government to the provinces. Um, it undermined the ability of the president to simply do their job. Right. Well, does um, power sharing also create more incentives for violence in the future, which if you know that if you just engage in violence and, you know, take the country to the edge, um, maybe you'll be rewarded with some, you know, prime ministership after the election's over? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the use of the use of violence in that period can certainly create opportunities downstream. You know, to be to be um, to be fair, the power sharing government here was really not a uh, Ghani and, and representatives of the Taliban. It was between those top two candidates. Um, and, you know, those top two candidates, it, it, you know, really didn't sync up on, on policy dimensions. Uh, they obviously ran against one another. Um, and that has created, I think, enough instability and questions about the role of the presidency in Afghanistan that it's influenced uh, public opinion about that position. It's influenced opinion about the role of democracy. It's influenced opinions about the role of international forces. Um, and, and that goes, you know, undermining the legitimacy of vote casting is, is one thing. Undermining the legitimacy of the entire democratic system is another, right? And I think that 
in that sense, the violence was both able to accomplish that short run goal and potentially a long run goal by, by just simply destabilizing the policymaking process. So Stephanie, what is the goal the international community should play then? I mean, if you and Austin are right, why does the international community continue to invest resources in democracy promotion in countries that have violent elections? I mean, why not just sort of take a step back and, and just kind of let things develop as they will? What's the point? Well, I think that, you know, the international community sees a role for democ themselves as democracy promoters and that by, you know, I guess, increasing the integrity of contests, maybe you've got sort of a, a long-term hope that you'll increase the quality of democracy. Uh, sometimes I teach at the State Department um, a course on elections in Africa, and I usually start with a question, um, if you had to choose between a free and fair election or a peaceful election, which one would you choose? And it's really interesting the responses that I get, but it's a trick question because you can't have one without the other. Well, well what do they respond? I'm curious, what do they say? Both, I've heard both. I've heard some people say free and fair, it's gotta be free and fair. And then other people say, obviously peaceful. You, If you don't have a peaceful election, then what's the point? Like the, you hear both, you hear both from, uh, the international community. And, you know, I think that you can't have either one if you don't push for both. So if we ask that question to American voters about American elections, what do you think their response would be if they had to think about that trade-off? Free and fair. You think so? I think so. I don't know, maybe. But, but, but the point is, is that you're forcing a trade-off to them in their thinking that's not a true trade-off because they either go together or they don't. That would be my argument, yeah. I don't awesome. think um, a poor quality election that's peaceful is meaningful. Austin, what about Afghanistan? I mean, it's so interesting in Afghanistan, and you and I have had this conversation so many times, which is like, they keep having elections. The country is obviously violent, separate and apart from its elections, but they keep having elections. Those elections, by and large, keep having a lot of violence and they keep having elections. Why? And, and what is the role, what do you see the role of the international community in supporting that particular part of, of, uh, of what Afghanistan is trying to do, uh, separate and apart from military and other types of aid, but what is the role of the international community in supporting elections in Afghanistan? Well, I think that's part of like just the, the big picture framing of you know, why election violence, especially in emerging democracies is so important. Right. If the institutions are incapable of managing the election, and that could be bureaucratic, right? But mostly we're thinking about this as incapable of securing the election, then should the election occur at all? Um, and you know, that's I think that's a it's an uncomfortable question that a lot of people don't really want to grapple with because it it seems when you ask that question, like what you're suggesting is perhaps some countries shouldn't have democracy. Um, but no, it's really just a question of should they, like, when should they have it? How quickly should you be promoting these elections? And are you providing uh, those countries, governments, regimes with the ability to secure the election uh, so that it can, act, can go off, um, hopefully without a hitch, either bureaucratic or in the use of violence? And, and I think we, when we looked at the data, it's, you know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars annually on a global scale are being poured into supporting elections of this kind that are disrupted by violence. If in the end, most of those elections are disrupted by violence 
And if that violence reduces turnout, reduces voter engagement, creates opportunities for uh, particular candidates who wouldn't otherwise elected to get elected to lead government, if it undermines confidence in, in the government broadly and democracy specifically, that's a problem, right? And, and I think it requires a lot of like deep reflective thinking about how quickly should governments be uh, transitioned to a, a large scale election, election process, right? I've got and, a couple of thoughts on that quick. Um, so, I mean, we can counterfactualize in the absence of elections, would there be turnover? Would there be more coups? Would there be more uh, rebellion? In Africa, the only country that hasn't held elections is Eritrea. Um, they haven't held elections since Fwerki came into power in the 90s, and I, they probably won't while he's in power. Um, but every other country in Africa has held some form of multi-party elections. Um, in the absence of those, would you have more coups? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's uh, yeah, I mean, I think- yeah. And that's what Latin America would tell us, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, of course, like, you know, there will be, uh, there will be <clears throat> politics by other means if you don't have elections. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but but thinking, you know, narrowly about this question of like, when do you introduce uh, attempts to democratize? How quickly after a regime has been overthrown by international forces, do you uh, require that government to begin planning for a national election? Right. Um, I think these are these are questions that like on their own, I think are important. And then, of course, you downstream it raises stakes of if you don't have those then we need to think about what's the consequence right does it incentivize coups does it incentivize politics by other means that's the other thing that i tell in my course on elections that elections are fascinating they're wonderful they're not peace agreements and they're not a ddr process or a ddrr mm. process or a dddrr process whatever it's going to be the demobilization reintegration um you know process Elections can't do that for you. Mm. The other thing I try to remind people, particularly Americans about why being myopic about this question is the wrong way to look at it, is to look at the United States, right? So we start having elections and I mean, we had elections before the Revolutionary War in certain states for, for local office, but let's just take it from the 1780s and 90s. There was election violence, election fraud, voter intimidation through to the progressive era. Okay, before and after the Civil War, election violence and intimidation was commonly used. Elections were rigged. And, and then in the progressive era, once women got the right to vote, it was uncouth to have really- What a explicit. disaster that was. I know, so, so and the, you know, there's other reforms that go on in the early 20th century and, and, and the rest of it. But it's like, you know, you look at democratization in, in um, Great Britain from the Magna Carta to the end of the Reform Acts in the 20th century, it took them 800 years to get democracy right. And so it's yeah, like, it's great there right now. Yeah, and it's like France. It had in 1789. It took a lot of bloodshed for France to get to the Fifth Republic. Um, and so the idea that like the, the this misinterpretation of history to be such that this is easy or straightforward in any country, I just think is so bizarre because history tells us that democracy is first of all never quick, and second of all, it's never easy. Huh. Agree completely, but democracy is not linear, right? And so you don't just hold elections and they over time get better. There have to be reforms. There have to be actors who are really diligent about trying to improve 
from election to election. So like Sudan has held elections for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Have they gotten any better over time? Well, no, they had to have a violent overthrow of a sitting incumbent to get them to a new place where they might actually have competitive elections, but those could be very violent, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, yes, democracy takes a long time. It is a uh, long-term commitment and process that requires a lot of intervention from domestic actors. We could argue about the role of international actors. Um, Has the U.S. gotten its democracy right? Um, You know, is the no. Great Britain? <laughs> <laughs> There's always improvements, right? I mean, that's the point. It's like, it can always get better. So it depends on, you, you may be coming from a baseline that's pretty good. It can always get better, but nobody's not coming from some unimpeachable, you know, ontological perfect perfection of democracy that they just like God gave it to them and then they did it and that was it. Yeah. It always comes through a lot of contestation, negotiation and failure. The um, most offensive question I ever get is like, is this country ready for elections or are these people ready for democracy? Like, that's so stupid. Is anybody ready for democracy? As ready as anybody else. Everybody <laughs> deserves, ready, though. Everybody <laughs> deserves to have, you know, a say in how they're ruled. Awesome. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think these are, I mean, these points are all well taken. Um, you know, I was, I was doing some reflection a few months ago about the role of election violence historically in the U.S. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, it's been a feature of our democracy since the beginning. Although I think the nature of that violence is usually like within system as opposed to anti-system and uh, you know, used by, by strong men and, and the, the bosses, right? The political machines. Um, and yeah, it's definitely to your, to your point. Yeah, no, no one, no one emerges sort of endogenously prepared for like that, the rigor of democracy and like all of that. But yeah, I think there is still something to be said about making sure that um, when these efforts are promoted, right? And, and we're talking, like I said, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of international support every year going towards promoting democracy. Like when when that aid is going out, are there cases where um, supporting that, particularly like in the absence of uh, military support and in the absence of securing the election more broadly or helping to secure it? Uh, is that money wasted or at worst actually like undermining the ultimate goal of those international actors to promote democracy? Yeah, well, I mean, if it's lining pockets of politicians who are ultimately going to, you know, uh, hold power, then it's a a good investment from that perspective. If you look at the Democratic Republic of Congo and elections there in 2006, I think that election cost half a billion dollars. Um, was that worth, and most of that, if not all of that was internationally funded. Was that worth mm-hmm. it? The Kenyan 2017 election that was overturned by the Supreme Court, that was probably one of the most expensive elections ever held on the African continent, if not anywhere. Um, was that worth the- Yeah, it was over a billion dollars for the system, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. But then it's like, you know, you look at all the money that people waste on other things, you know, a billion dollars for an election doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> I mean, all things considered. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested in hearing about Supreme Courts overturning uh, elections today. <laughs> in 2017, it was a great one. And that segues to something I really wanted to ask James about. Yeah, and go it's ahead. About election observation and monitoring. Do you think that the international community and the election observation sort of um, model currently works? 
I don't know. Um, you know, I think all of us who do this kind of work um, are better served with humility than um, easy answers to that question, no matter how strong advocates for democracy we want to be. The, I, I think the way I think about it is a point that actually Susan Hyde on the first episode of this podcast and I talked about, which is to me why I think it matters. And I'm going to actually answer this from the perspective of an American voter, not an American who engages in election observation internationally. I think it matters to the voters that they see that the rest of the world cares about democracy in their country as much as they care about democracy in their country. And so you can have candidates that are disruptive, you can have insurgents that are trying to undermine the system domestically, but for voters to get that signal that there is a Stephanie and an Austin in the world who cares about democracy in their country, I think means a lot. And the reason I say that is, you know, during the recent election in the US, I had colleagues from Bangladesh, India, South Africa, Uganda, um, Kenya, Ghana, reaching out to me every day saying, we're with you. You know, we've been through something like this before, you know, keep working at it. You guys will get through this. America's important. We care about you guys. And that just meant a great deal to me. And I'd never been in that position. And so I think even though international election observation obviously, you know, often doesn't do exactly what it intends to do, I think just having a global sense that this is an endeavor that all of humanity is engaged with, that all of humanity is trying to work to improve and that nobody has the corner on having done it perfectly, but all of us wanna to work together to make it better. To me, that's kind of the point. So that is a very good like response and that makes me feel good inside of my heart. But uh, I will push back and say yeah. that I think as currently um, constitu uh, constituted, it's a problem. So I want to take the 2017 Kenyan elections, for example, in which the international community said it was a free and fair election and the Supreme Court nullified it less than two weeks later, or about two weeks later, and said, actually, there are massive irregularities. This was not a free and fair election. John Kerry said, hey, you know, stand down, accept the results. And then the Supreme Court of Kenya said, no, we're not, we're going to rerun this election because there was so much fraud. Um, the missions that went and declared that that election was free and fair, um, there was like maybe 400 people on the ground, maybe maximum a thousand people. I estimate that they went and um, visited 4% of Kenya's polling places and they didn't go to the places where the fraud and the violence were probably most likely to have occurred. They didn't have access to any of the um, electoral commission, the IEBC servers. They didn't secure like Carter Center and IFAS and everyone, the EU, everyone who went, like there was not um, access to actually be able to, to check up on the, the integrity of the, the election. And so, my argument would be if you can't do what you say you're doing, you're just sort of blowing smoke, you know, up people's. And so Sorry. I would, I would reformat election observation missions and I would call them election conflict mitigation. Like what you're actually doing there is to try and prevent violence and try and get people to accept the outcome. You cannot speak about the freeness and fairness of the election. So you shouldn't do that at all. Okay. So let me, I, Stephanie, I think you're right. Let me amend what I was saying. I, what, in my response, I was viewing the role of the international community as always to be an advocate there on the part of voters. They're not there to be the advocate of political parties or the government, certainly not insurgents. 
they're there to support an election. And what elections are about, or election day is about voters. Everything else in politics can be about politicians, but elections are about voters. And so in my model, I want the international community to support voters. In your model, you're saying, James, that only works if that's what they do, if they're actually <laughs> supporting other interests, whether it's their own parochial interest or, or uh, national security interest, or they're actually, you know, you know, whether on purpose or inadvertently support undermining what the voters have done and instead supporting one side or the other, then that's a problem. And I, I, I would agree with that. So there's recent research that came out in the past couple of years that says in order to really truly be effective, election observation missions have to be uh, willing to accept some level of violence occurring as a result of their uh, pronouncements about the freeness and fairness of elections. And as far as I can tell, most missions do not accept that. They are risk averse. They do not want to be perceived as being uh, responsible in any way, shape or form for a violence taking place. And so they are really loath to criticize elections in which um, they don't have direct information that fraud occurred, though we all could speculate that it did, um, because they are trying to preserve the peace at the, the cost of justice, in my opinion. And I just think that the model's broken. Well, let me, let me end by asking you both kind of a big picture question, transitioning on this point, which is, if election violence is kind of a regular feature in these countries, and the international community has is, is done, you know, been successful or not, what then is the fate of democracy in the 21st century, kind of at a global level, if election violence seems to be pretty common and, and isn't likely to go away anytime soon? Does that make us skeptical about democracy? Does it make us try to work even harder and double down? Do we, do we need to wait and just see how certain things vest in certain countries? What are your thoughts on that? And maybe start with Austin. Yeah, so I, I think that you, um... I, you raise an important question, um, and and my hope is that what people take away from from this episode and, and the work more broadly that you two have have done on this is that um, this is not a signal that we should give up on on the democratic project at all. It's a sign that uh, I think James, as you put it earlier, like the pro like it is never finished. The work is never done. Um, it requires a continuous commitment to the institution and the ideals. Um, and a recognition that in some contexts there will be flare-ups um, and that it is the project is never perfected, right? But we're in this, this constant state of trying to find ways of stabilizing the idea of stabilizing institutions broadly about trying to increase human welfare. Um, and that I think we would probably all agree that this is, at, at least in terms of um, types of political institutions, probably all agree that this is the one that on average delivers welfare the best. Um, and certainly I think is, is the most representative of people's interests. Um, but it's still tremendously unjust on average, right? Um, but I think that, you know, the goal would be, look, you know, democracy is still a relatively early uh, idea in, in like the grand scheme of the existence of, of humanity. Um, and that hopefully in the 21st century, we get closer to that ideal uh, in a broader set of countries and avoid um, an authoritarian turn. I don't speak about American politics very much because it is not my specialty. I will just say people have asked me, um, were you surprised, you're election violence specialist, were you surprised to see sort of the rhetoric and, and some of the, the accusations um, occurring in the 2020 US elections? And I have said, that no, like 
I wasn't surprised necessarily. I just, I don't believe in the American exceptionalism in that we don't have to work hard for what we have, that, you know, we are just somehow special and unique uh, compared to the rest of the world. I love being an American and I love our system. And I think that we have to work really hard to maintain it, to improve it. And I think we need a lot of self-reflection on the things that work and the things that don't. And I think it's insulting to think like that election violence is something that happens over there. It's something that happens in Africa and Asia and you know, other places that it's not something that could occur here because it has occurred here. Like James, you, you obviously know, we know it's happened. Um, but I, I think that democracy is worth it. Again, worst system of government, except for everything else. I, there's no other system I would like to live under except for maybe my own, you know, rule. I'd be a good sovereign, <laughs> I think. Um, but other than that, you know, there's every good autocrat. <laughs> there you go. Everybody's awful, except for trust me, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> well, I think in kind of summarizing what both of you have said, I think what the 2020 election did in the United States was wake up Americans to exactly the point that you both are making, which is that democracy requires a, a, a fight, not a violent fight, but I, I mean, people working very hard to maintain it. And, and Americans were just woken up in 2020 to things that Afghans and Kenyans and Ghanaians are pretty used to. And in fact, Americans have been used to in the past. And if you look at it from the perspective of the fact that there was violence or threats of violence, that's a bad thing. But if you look at it in terms of, we often have to be reminded that we have to work hard to maintain democracy, then it's actually a good thing, I would argue. I never think violence is a good thing, but the reminder that democracy is something, it's a project that we all should participate in through voting and through, I mean, let's not get into the electoral fallacy that elections are democracy. There's so many other things we need to be doing. We need to protect our, our press. We need to you know, make sure that the uh, legislatures at the state level and at the national level is independent, that judiciaries, that courts are independent. There's so many things that we need to, you know, civil society needs to be active and vibrant. There's a million things we could be doing in addition to promoting, you know, free and fair elections. Yeah, and I will say one more thing, which is, you know, it's, it's important to bear in mind that as crazy as things have been during this like 2020 general election cycle, more Americans voted in this election than in the history of the existence of this country. And uh, that is exciting. Obviously, the fact that there were so many who turned out for a particular candidate is a little bit concerning. But the fact that so many are engaged in the project of democracy, even if we may fundamentally disagree about who should lead our country, um, I think is, is an important sign that, you know, of course, there will always be episodes, right? They're, they're an uncomfortable reminder that this, we're never done, right? That effort is always needed. Um, but I think, you know, what this suggests is that um, people will engage in democracy if only you eliminate the barriers. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, the big lessons that a lot of folks have learned um, and, and also that not just Democrats can turn out. Um, and so that, that, yeah, hopefully, you know, keeps everybody on their toes, but also is a not so gentle reminder of like the, you know, the benefits and drawbacks of, of democracy. If elections weren't important, there wouldn't be attempts at suppression. Nobody would be voting and nobody would be trying to keep you from voting because it wouldn't matter. Right. Right. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Stephanie Bertrude, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy. Very great conversation. Thanks, James. Austin Wright, thanks a lot for joining us today.
All right. Thank you all for, for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.